Morning. Morning to the, those of you uh, watching online as well. And if you're here this morning at this 1030 service, it means you're probably not going to the Bills game. So you get extra credit as well for being here this morning. Beautiful day for that as well. We are back here in Acts chapter 2. If you have been with us in this study, it's our fourth week in this study, the last few weeks, two weeks, this will be the third. We've been in one chapter. We're going to finish that, Acts chapter 2, a very uh, few verses, which, as I've said before, is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, uh, Acts chapter 2. The final verses that we'll read, just a few of them, are very well known, and they're kind of a cameo, you might say, or a word picture of a spirit-filled church. Okay, if you heard that term, we've talked about it before. What is a spirit-filled church? These verses are an illustration, a, a word picture of what a spirit-filled church is. But we also discover here in these verses is that the church is not simply a place to go. You all came here this morning, so we're at church. But more importantly, the church is a way of being in the world. Right? The church is a way of being in the world. I want to look at this morning. Message is titled, A Community of Transformation. Have a copy of the Bible in your lap on your phone. Turn to Acts 2, just a handful of verses, verses 41 to 47. A Community of Transformation. Those who accepted his message, Apostle Peter, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay? The New Testament church was born. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A community of transformation. I just got back Wednesday night with uh, the whole discipleship team, six of us, uh, in, uh, in a conference. Indianapolis, it was a conference um, that was with, I don't know, 500 or 5,000, 5,000 or so pastors and leaders from all over the country, some uh, from different parts of the world as well. And the theme of this conference, or the, the big idea, the, the book that they used, to, I should say, to framework the conference was the book of Exodus. And the theme was a hope in the wilderness. So there was a lot of you know, plenary sessions, there was breakouts, but the big idea was hope in the wilderness. The book of Exodus framed everything that happened in those three days. Now in those three days, they didn't cover, of course, all every single chapter in the book, but it was an overarching understanding of the book, and they had plenary sessions in three days, and, and pastors uh, and different leaders gave plenary sessions, and one of those sessions was given by a pastor who I did eventually meet but I'd never met before from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and he had the privilege or the opportunity. His section was Exodus 14, which in a manner of speaking is where the book kind of gets its name. It's the actual passage in the book where the people of God cross into the Red Sea. So let me give you a quick rundown of the Exodus, you know, in, in 20 seconds. What is the Exodus story? The people of God in, in, living in Egypt, 
ultimately as slaves for 400 years, that God hears the cry of the people, sends Moses, the 10 plagues, and out of that, the Egyptians finally break and let the people of God leave Egypt, and they leave in dramatic fashion with all the blessings, you might say, or, or the riches of Egypt that are given to them. It's this unusual, amazing turnabout from the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they go through the Red Sea. Right, And they go through this dry land. The sea opens up and then closes on Pharaoh's army, the Exodus. And he tells this story. He said two things that were important. He said one, of course, didn't need a lot of time with a bunch of pastors and leaders. This is a historical event. So he's telling you this happened. It's really, it happened, you know, uh, 3,000 years ago. This was the moment where Israel got its name. You know, in a manner of speaking, you got its identity. It ultimately got the Ten Commandments on the other side of that great moment. But he said it's more than simply a historical event. The Exodus is, in a manner of speaking, the story of Israel. And let's think about it. This book, Old Testament, New Testament, didn't exist in written form for a long time, even the Old Testament, uh, before the New Testament came. In other words, it was oral tradition. People told the stories. And he said, for, for, for uh, you know, a thousand plus years after the event, if people wanted to know, you know, if, where they're intersecting people that are Hebrew, that are Jewish, and say, what does it mean to be a Hebrew? What does that mean? What does it mean to be Jewish? They would tell the Exodus story, right? And a paraphrase. They would tell this. This is if you want to know what it means. I can't tell you the whole story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the prophets. I don't have time to tell you all that story. You wouldn't listen anyway. But I'll tell you one story, the ultimate story that says what it means to be Jewish. I don't know if you, I, I learned this even in my study this for this sermon. In the Old Testament, this proves this man's point. Um, the Exodus story is told, retold, either in full fashion or in a few verses, in five verses, in a quarter of a psalm, 120 times in the Old Testament. Okay? It's the story, in shorthand, of Israel. If you really want to capture the essence of what it means to be a Hebrew, the essence of the Jewish, peop of the Jewish people, the essence of the Old Testament people of God, the Exodus story is the story. It captures their identity. For the New Testament people of God, it's Acts chapter 2. And the community, I'm talking about the story of Pentecost, the descent of the Spirit, and the community it produced is the few verses that we just read. Okay? That's how important this story is. It's our story. It's my story. It's your story. Now, the church, this case the church in Jerusalem, it wasn't a perfect church, although these verses are pretty awesome. right? But we're, we'll tell the rest of the story going forward. It wasn't a perfect church any more than the nation of Israel after the Exodus was a perfect nation. But it is in these verses, I'm sure they're here on purpose, by Luke, the author of this book, to not only tell a story but to give us something, to a, a model for us. Because what you see here are the dynamics of the spiritual life, right, in, in, a, in, a, in a word picture. This is what you see. The dynamics of the spiritual life, another, said another way, this is how our transformation, if you, if you say, well, the, the Bible promises or talks about a transformation, it's where John just used here a minute ago, John Webster, what is, what, what is, how do, how am I transformed? This is the story of how you're transformed. Acts 2, 
all of Acts 2, but the picture, the beautiful, you know, the cover of the puzzle box, 42 to 47, says a couple things. Number one, worship is the agent of our transformation, your transformation, my transformation. In fact, really, you could almost stop the whole sermon right there. If you read this passage, it's essentially all about worship. They devoted themselves, the apostles, teaching this the New Testament, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, communion. They were filled with awe and many wonders happened. And they, and they enjoyed the favor of all the people and God added to those that were being. This is it. It's the consequence of worship. Worship is the agent of our transformation. Now, some people would say that the real miracle of Pentecost, which is the day we're still in that experience, Acts 2, this is our story, that the real miracle of Pentecost is not what we looked at two weeks ago when we started this. In other words, the real miracle of Pentecost isn't the, the descent of the Spirit, the violent wind, the tongues of fire, the, the sort of supernatural events that happen in the first four verses, which are pretty powerful. But the real miracle of Pentecost is that this diverse group of people, if you remember the sermon of two weeks ago, people that came together, they didn't know what was going to happen, but what happened changed them forever. They were people not just from Judea, not just from Sea of Galilee, not just from the Jordan. They were people from all over the Roman Empire who had come together for this, this pilgrimage festival. They had come together as they've done every year, but this year, God chose to let the Spirit descend and change everything to start the church. And this group of people are the same people that are talked about in this passage. So the real miracle of Pentecost, some people would say, is listen, it's that these people from different backgrounds, different skin colors, different um, points of view, different cultures, different languages. Go back and read Acts chapter 1. These people came together and they formed in a very short period of time a kind of unity that was not seen in any other kind of organization of its kind, a unified body. We were in the airport um, coming back uh, the other day, Wednesday. John and I and I and the team, but John and I were walking. It was in Chicago, very busy airport, just full of people as it often is. And he just had a moment. I was just, we were just waiting. And he looked up and he looked around. And he goes, you know, airports are amazingly, um, the, 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 the mix of people it's really kind of a, a, an amazing thing of all the people that are gathered, I mean, in an airport. And I, I kind of got up, I just looked around. It was kind of a busy day, too, and I thought, a busy time, I guess, for the, air, for the uh, airport. And I thought, you know, you're right. I mean, we were just surrounded by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people just in this one terminal we were. I mean, you name it, different skin colors, different backgrounds. You heard a few different languages spoke. You know, and first class is right there with economy. I mean, we're all there together. And I thought to myself in a moment, I was thinking of some of the things I was reading, and I said, you know, in a sense, in a way, it's almost like a picture of heaven. By that I meant that if we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, I mentioned it in the book of Revelation, when you finally get to the end of this whole story, the people of God are surrounding the throne from every nation, every tongue, every background. That's how the church, that's what God's been building. And I said, at least in one way, I said, it's kind of a picture of heaven. Although the people are probably a little happier in heaven, okay? But that's what it reminded me of. But the word that's used here, it's very intentional. They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship. Oh, that's a, that's a word that we've kind of, you know, gloss over or we read. But this is the very first time that word is ever used in the Bible. And what the word fellowship means, it's really kind of a compound word. It means this. I mean, even outside of this context, it means a shared experience. 
And in the writer of the New Testament here, Paul, uh, Luke, but then Paul turns it into sort of almost a doctrinal word going for it in the New Testament. What it means in this case is a shared participation, wait for it, in the Spirit. That's what it means. He's saying what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of a community is you have a shared participation in the Spirit. And this shared participation in the Spirit means that two people, three people, 3,000 people, they can get together. And if they, even though the day before, the year before, they had very little in common, right? They weren't from the same neighborhood. They weren't from the same even cultural background necessarily. They came together and something connected them shared participation in the Spirit, that was deeper than any other kind of relationship. Deeper even than they had with their wife. Deeper even than they had with their kids. Deeper than they even had with their family of origin. It was even deeper, as Jesus said, when he was asked once, and they said, your mother and brother are standing outside, and he said, listen, he pointed down to the disciples. He said, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? These people. He wasn't throwing his family under the bus. He was saying, my deepest connection are with the people right here. That's what the word fellowship means. Three times in this passage, I'm sure it's all on purpose. Once in verse 44, twice in verse 46. They together, they had everything. In, they, they were together. They met together. They ate together. He's making a point. They experienced this little cameo. The highest aspirations of human longing and community than in any other place in their lives. They had a kind of freedom, a kind of joy, a kind of unity, a kind of relational connection, as Teresa just mentioned, that they didn't have anywhere else in life. It's a miracle, okay? It's trying to make a point here. You cannot program this. You can't manufacture this, okay, what you see happening here. It only happens in response to worship. Think about this. You've heard this before, this truth. We become like what we worship. Okay? And when you first hear that, especially those of you who have kids in this room, uh, you, you, it, it's kind of a, a sobering thing. Because we, our culture, every culture, we're trying to capture the imaginations. And we idolize things. What do we idolize? Well, I mean, athletes are idolized. And uh, celebrities are idolized. And, and people with a lot of money. There's a lot of things that are idolized in the culture that aren't necessarily a good thing to idolize. But we become like what we worship, right? It's true for adults too, of course. But there's also a positive side to that concept. We become like what we worship. Only in worship, here's the point, can we experience the transformation that we're talking about here, true transformation, because only in worship can we encounter the living God. That's what you see happening in this passage. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the Bible, the New Testament. To prayer, right? To fellowship, a shared experience with the Spirit. And then it says this. That everyone was filled with awe. I don't need to define the word awe, but let me ask you something. What does awe mean? You know what it means. It's, it's, it's a sense of reverence. It's a sense of wonder. It's a sense of almost being lifted outside of yourself in a manner of speaking because you're moved by what's in front of you. In relation to God, that's what happens. So I ask this question to myself, but I'm asking it to you. When's the last time you had an experience of awe in your relationship with God? It doesn't have to be in a church service. could be, but in your walk with God. 
Have you experienced awe? And you'd say, well, Rob, not so much. So this is just a history lesson. No. Well, then why didn't it happen? Well, it tells you why it happened here. Verse 42. They devoted themselves. Slow down. Okay, that's a choice. You can come to church. You can be a Christian. You can go to a Christian school. You can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't mean you're devoted. What did they devote themselves to? You know, I don't have to describe what devoted means. They devoted themselves to a number of things. These are the dynamics of the spiritual life. Number one, prayer. It says that here. Prayer. Now, what is he talking about in prayer? He, let me tell you what he's not talking about primarily. Praying for your sick friend or your promotion. And there's nothing wrong with praying for your sick friend or your promotion at all. But if you look at the prayers in the Bible, we'll look at one in a couple weeks in the book of Acts, but when you look at the prayer in the Bible, let me tell you what they're almost exclusively praying about. They're praying about the Spirit of God making Jesus real in your heart. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, that the Christ might be, uh, may come alive in your inner man, that you might discover the breadth, the depth, the width of the love of God, that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead might be at work in you. That's the prayers of the New Testament. That's what you're supposed to be praying. That's what I'm supposed to be praying. It's devoted to see Jesus Christ become more real in your life. Are you devoted? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's this, guys. You know that. The apostles' teaching. It doesn't mean you listen to it. It's not a bad idea. It doesn't mean you don't show up to church. I want you to show up to church. But it's, you know this, the Bible says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides, it's a metaphor, but it's making a point. Soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It, it cuts to the heart. We talked about this two weeks ago. It cuts to the heart and interprets the thoughts and intents of the human heart so that God can bring about conviction and healing and new life. You have to be devoted to the word of God. And then it says the breaking of bread. Okay, we're going to do that in a few minutes. The breaking of bread twice is mentioned in this passage. Now, I, that tells me he's not talking about having a meal because I don't need to mention that twice in a few verses. He talks about being in the temple courts, which was their version of early church, corporate church, and at home, a version of a small group. But he mentions it twice. Well, what breaking of bread very likely means here is it's appointing to one of only the two ordinances in the Christian church, which is communion. And the whole purpose of this is not simply a history lesson. The purpose of this is to remind ourselves that what's the heart of our faith, that behind, this sac- behind the breaking of bread and in the, in the cup represents the reality behind our faith, represents the greatest love that ever came into the world. And you remind yourself of that, and it strikes your heart anew because it's the power behind a transformed life. That's what they're trying to do. That's what they're trying to remember. If you want to experience this transformation, this is what you need to experience. It's a reminder of the sacrifice of the love that changed your life because it's only here in this reminder. You don't need to take communion to do it, but you can do it when you take communion. That you can experience freedom from guilt, freedom from judgment. Listen, freedom, release from self-centeredness. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, John, 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. It's almost like he's, he's, he's saying something. Like you, so, you tell somebody you'll say something and you, you, you hardly believe it's true but you're saying it out loud. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. This is what changes your life. That we should be called, someone like me should be called the children of God but ladies and gentlemen that 
is what we are. That's what you're punctuating, you're celebrating, you're reminding yourself and saying, Holy Spirit, strike my heart anew, afresh. Detonate these truths in my life because this is what brings about your transformation. You say quickly, our society, speaking of a a group of people that have come together from all these different countries, all these different backgrounds, all these different points of view, and they're a unified body loving and serving each other with grace and freedom and release. We live in a, our society is divided more today than in any time, at least in my lifetime. Divided. over. You don't have to go down the list. Over all kinds. Families are divided. And the church is more divided than any time in my ministry of 20 plus years. If the world ever needed the church, ever needed the church to be what it's really supposed to be, right? It's not about um, this. It, it's not about self-promotion. It's not about, um, you know, getting people to, it really needed to see the church as a community of transformation, a place where people who have divisions can come together and have a greater participation in something deeper, something more lasting, something more powerful, it's today. But you can, the only way to get there is two ways. A greater devotion to the dynamics we're talking about here and a greater dependence on the Spirit of God. Because the purpose of the Spirit of God, which we've said over the last many weeks, has one purpose. Three individuals, one God. We don't understand the mystery, but what happens, Jesus said, listen, unless I go away, I can't come back in the person of the Holy Spirit. I need to get inside of you. My life needs to be detonated inside of your life if you're ever going to become the kind of follower that you need to be. The only way to get there is the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, that's what Acts 2 is about. Number one, worship is the agent of our transformation. There's nothing more important you can do than get serious about your walk with God. They were devoted, are you? Second, generosity some of you say, well, I don't know if I'm really having that quality of experience, Rob. I don't know if the, if the Spirit of God has detonated the life of Jesus in me. Well, generosity is the evidence of my, your transformation. That's why these verses are here as well. And what you see here, when it says everything, all the believers had everything in common. What is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about they all love the same sports team. They all had the same skin color, or food choices. They all were from the same neighborhood. Of course not. The next verse tells you. It means that they, they had such a powerful experience with the grace of God, a powerful experience with the gospel releasing them from their insecurities of true love that everything else in their life became secondary. They were able to let go, to open their hand, and to be able to say, I'm not going to go to the world to get validated. I can go to the world to give because I've already been validated. That's what it says, verse 45. They sold all their property and possessions. Now, to give to anyone who had need. Listen, it's, let me tell you what's going on here. It's not a new law. It's not a new doctrine. It's a from-the-heart generosity born out of a generosity that's at the heart of the gospel. They loved well because they were loved well. That's the heart of what's happening here. Acts, the book of Acts, we'll look at this over the course of these many months, it only takes place, the whole story, all these churches that are started, first, second, third missionary journey, etc., it all happens in 30 years, 30 or so years. In the end of the book, more or less, maybe 10,000s of Christians. Pretty, pretty still amazing in 30 years. In 300 years, 
historians will tell us, the greatest expansion in the history of the church. In 300 years, it altered the Christian church. No media, no internet, no whatever. Okay, it altered the Roman Empire. By the 4th century, some of us, our history is better than others. What was called, if you're a history buff, paganism, it's kind of an official word now, we use it as a slang, but paganism, which was kind of an, a, a, a worship of idols, a local god's worship, paganism, which was the world religion in a manner of speaking, remember this before Islam, this is before Christianity, but when, when this all happened, um, paganism virtually vanished because of Christianity. The Roman emperor himself, the Roman emperor himself became a committed Convic- uh, a converted follower of Jesus. I mean, when does this happen? That's what happened. So let me ask you a question. Maybe guys more than ladies. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Okay, all right. Little TikTok joke for you there, right? Listen, we forget our history. Here's my point. We forget our story. But the Christian church, the Christian church, the one that you're a part of, listen, virtually created the hospital system. We don't know that because we've divorced God from these, these things. Created the orphanage system. Listen, the great humanitarian aid, what we call humanitarian aid, the UN, whatever the case may be, that, that happens, NGOs. This idea of humanitarian aid, was, which happens now, now it's connected to different names and different brands and different ideologies, was started by the Christian church. Right? Generosity is the evidence of our transformation. If someone asked me, right, well, the story of Israel is the story of the Exodus. Rob, what is your story? It said, tell your story, Rob, in a story. Right? I mean, you got five minutes, right? Well, your elevator pitch. The story I would tell, if I were to tell my story in a quick story, would be my second Christmas. And my second Christmas, four months after my first Christmas, my dad, young man in his late 30s, dropped out of a heart attack. Eight or nine months later, at my second Christmas, his wife, my mother, still in recovery of a kind, did not have a job yet, did not turn her life around yet, certainly didn't have a lot of money to buy anything for her six children, the youngest by then a year old, the oldest eight years old, maybe pushing nine. And all of a sudden shows up Christmas Eve, this little mountain of gifts, all wrapped, beautifully wrapped, names of all her kids on them. And as the story was told me, of course, I don't remember the story, <laughs> but as the story was told me, these were, these were the kind of gifts that we didn't normally get. I mean, one gift was a brand new something-something sled. Another gift was a, brand, a beautiful coat. I mean, these were not only gifts for these kids, but nice gifts. Now, my mother didn't know it, who, where these came from, but she found out about a year later, it was a family, their last name is Hickey, I'm telling you my story in a short story, a family from the church that we went to. She didn't know this family, but this family knew about her and about her needs. It's generosity. I do have vague memories of another story when not that long later, a couple men showed up with a brand spanking new station wagon and gave the keys to my mother um, who didn't have a car. And that was just a number of couple stories of many more that came, many people who I think were from the church who decided that they were going to demonstrate something 
to my, and I would say this about my mother. I mean, I, I catch this up, I'm a young kid. But that kind of generosity, I would say, characterized my early house. Even when we had seven people living in our house, a 1,200, maybe 1,300 square foot house, it's hard to believe now, we had people, two or three or four in, before I graduated from high school, my mother said, so-and-so needs a place to live, so-and-so needs a place to live. They lived in our house. Okay? Now, my mother eventually remarried, but not until 14 years later. She raised those six children on her own. Okay? Four of them, in a manner of speaking, um, got into the generosity business. One's a doctor, one's a midwife, two are in vocational ministry. All I think because of the acts of generosity of other people at a time of great need in her life. Okay? The meeting of needs, material, emotional, spiritual, is a concrete sign that something unsettling and substantial has happened. A deep inner need has been met. That's where worship comes. And a radical unselfishness results. The church in Jerusalem is a model, at least in these verses, of what can happen when people are bound together by a belief in the gospel and an understanding of its implications. Right? Worship is the agent of your transformation. It's the agent of my transformation. It's the agent of our transformation if we really want to be changed. I'm talking about truly changed. Generosity is the evidence. Lastly, a community of transformation grows naturally when its people act like this. I mean, when they're truly transformed. Notice all this beautiful language. They sold their property. They gave to anyone who had need. They continued to meet in temple and at home. And with glad and sincere hearts praising God, wait for it, and enjoying the favor of all the people. There was no strategy to grow the church. The strategy was the transformation of the people in it. People could see, because they didn't live in a commune, they lived in neighborhoods, they could see the transformation. Right? Some of those Christians knocked on the doors of their neighbors who lost their father, who lost their brother, whose marriage fell apart, whatever the case may be. And they got the favor of all the people. And they said, wow, what's going on with you? I want to know more about. And then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's almost as, as, as Jeline was saying earlier. God is sovereign over all over the world, over the church. And he kind of looks down and says, as he said to Paul in Acts 18, I got more people in this city. See, God's obviously has a different point of view than you and I. He sees everything at the same time as if it was all in one moment. And he, he knows who's hungry for him. And he says, well, let's send them to that church because that church isn't full of itself. That church doesn't have a workspace theology. That church is it's not perfect, but they got their, heads, they got their, their, their hearts screwed in the right way. And they're... They understand, they're devoted and they know they have the gospel at the heart of who they are. Send them there. And the Lord had added daily those who were being saved. A community of transformation, really the whole point of this series, the dynamics of spiritual life, grows naturally.
the radical unselfishness and generosity spills out to the community. Because, here's, here's a summary of this statement, this whole passage. Because their worship was daily, okay? It wasn't a once a week thing. They were devoted. They met together in the temple courts in homes. This idea of a small group is, is, is an old idea. They met in homes and they broke bread. They reminded themselves of the heart of their faith. They did this regularly and they had this sense of joy and they had the favor of the people. And God added daily to, to their number. Because their worship was daily, their witness was daily. That's the key. Because their worship was their daily thing, so too was their witness. Paul Miller, the guy I got to sit under last week, said recently in a book, the Spirit made Jesus' body come alive. Talking about the resurrection. And now he continues to make Jesus' body on earth, that is the church, come alive. That's what we've been talking about. The Christian life then is a continual experience of the resurrection spirit of Jesus. When we pray together, or gather together, or open the word together, the Father responds with the spirit of Jesus who recreates many resurrections in our families and in our communities. Jesus invites his disciples a number of times, okay, in the Gospels. Jesus invites his disciples into how he does life. How does Jesus do life? A prayerful waiting on the Spirit of God. Okay? So this is what I want to do. We're going to take communion and be done. But I want to give you a minute to pray first together, either with the person next to you or by yourself, with your kids, your spouse. Take a minute. But I want you to I want to use this verse as an outline for you. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, it's one of these examples I just mentioned about Jesus and his disciples. Though you are evil, he means that comparatively speaking to God, if you then are evil, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, nobody in here as a parent would give their Christmas, would give a bag of coal to their kids for Christmas or, uh, you know, uh, whatever, no. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you a brand new automobile? Right, a, 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 a reversal of a health diagnosis. No, that's not the ultimate thing that you need. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You know who he was talking to then? The disciples. So he's not talking about how to become a Christian here. He's saying, listen, the most important thing you need, the most important thing I need is the Holy Spirit. And to constantly pray to the Spirit to ask because the Holy Spirit is the agent of bringing the life of Jesus, he said, I need to go away because unless I go away, I can't really change your life because I need to not just be standing next to you, I need to be inside of you. Right? That's how your life changes. That's how my life changes. So I want you to take just literally 60 seconds and I want you to pray, but what does I want you to do with your friend, daughter, uh, uh, by yourself, your, whoever you're sitting next to. Don't pray, at least in this moment, for your promotion. Don't pray for your sick friend. Do that later today, if you want. But pray in your own words that God would give you a greater experience with the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus real in your life. So let's pray 60 seconds. We'll take this together and be done. Let's pray.
on the night he was betrayed. You can peel this top plastic off of your cup if you have it. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. Okay, he tore it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this represents my body which will be broken also for you. Let's eat together. And peel back this little foil. When supper was ended, the last supper, he took the cup and he passed that. He said, this represents the new covenant, the new story in my blood which will be shed for you tomorrow for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. God and Father, we come to you as we do every Sunday, but here in this moment. And we ask you, Lord, to hear our prayers. Whatever prayers you just heard, may you hear them and answer them. May you, Holy Spirit, we pray and ask you to become more present in our lives, more aware, or maybe be more aware of your presence in our lives. May you release in us a greater understanding a greater experience of the reality of Jesus. May his life, resurrection life, be released more fully in our lives today. Make us a community, Lord, uh, of transformed people whose hearts um, are new, whose, whose love is growing and stronger, more like Christ's love, that we might show the world a different way to live and point them to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as I send you out on this first Sunday of the month, as we often do this together, we also have a mercy offering. It's just a way to give on the way out, or of course you can do it as you give electronically as well. What's the mercy offering? Many of you know. It's not for light bills. It's not for snow plowing. We don't have that yet, of course. But, you know, it's, it's for um, acute needs, people in need. Single moms, example of my story. It's for people in need. So if you want to participate in the mercy offering, you can do that. Have a great Sunday.